from MZ Studios in Dallas, Texas, you're listening to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. Bianca Andreescu. Welcome back to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. I know you guys love when you're hearing a different voice. Coach is out today partying on spring break or St. Patrick's Day, something like that. So you're stuck with me talking about Indian Wells. We couldn't uh, we couldn't let you guys get by without hearing, hearing us on the final day of Indian Wells. The main reason I started the show with that name is because I think it's going to be a name you're going to be hearing quite a bit in women's tennis for a long time. Nothing to do with the fact that Federer and team are still playing as I record this, but uh, no, she was incredible. Um, you know, looking through the draw at all her results, obviously she started as an unseated player and didn't, uh, so she didn't have much fanfare to start with, but she beat Begu in three sets, so she lost the first set in her first match of the tournament. And then she had a great win, pretty easy routine win against Sibulkova, and had another win against Vogeli, who... You know, certainly her probably less least known opponent. And I mean, she was just rolling. She, we kept, we started to hear more. Then she beat Wang, who was the 18 seed, again in straight sets. So she, at that point, had won six straight sets. And then she's in the quarterfinals. You're thinking, okay, this was, you know, a little bit of a fluke. She's, you know, had a favorable draw to the first round. And this was the first match that I got to see her play. And against, you know, Garbina Muguruza, a Grand Slam champion, she wins the first nine games. So she's up 6-0-3-0, which happened to be the time I turned it on. And she just, she lost one game. So to a top 20 player in the world, she lost one game, 6-0-6-1. And at that point, I mean, we had had some, some great tennis on the women's side. And, you know, I bet if you ranked the eight players that were left at that time, she would probably have been number eight in your prediction. We had Benchish Pliskova, Venus and Kerber, and then Muguruza, and you had Svitolina and Vondrasova. So it would have been between her and Vondrasova as the two, you know, that would have been the least uh, probable winners at that point. And anyway, she beats her so badly. And, you know, so many of the players we've seen over the years, they get a great win like that, a dominant win over a big-name player, and they fold the next round. Well, she had a marathon match the next, uh, the next round against Svitolina. Again, now we're talking about a top-10 player in the world. Wins the first set, loses the second, wins 6-4 in the third. And aside from the fact that Svitolina has had kind of an under... I'm not going to say she's underachieving because she's sixth in the world, but she's had a had a tough time closing out in those matches, you know, where it matters. And so we kind of saw a little bit of that here where, you know, she had an opportunity to win, got it back to even, and then just lost it in the third, which seems to be how most of her tournaments end. You know, she makes them work, you know, drives them to the end, but can't quite cross the finish line. But then you're thinking, okay, Andreescu's beaten Svitolina, really long match. Kerber won pretty easily in the semis before, so she had more rest time and a shorter match. And so you're thinking, okay, in the final, their first Masters final, she's going to be super nervous, going to have a hard time. And again, she wins the first set, loses the second, and just battles all the way to the end. 6-4 in the third against Kerber. And you know, Kerber, watching that match, you know, Kerber is always going to make you hit a ton of balls. And that's typically where the the lower players or the even the younger players 
will eventually wilt or get impatient, and she was just able to hold it together, you know, the entire time, and it's, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I'm looking at the stats from that match, and, uh, you know, their points, their points played were very close, but she just was able to win, you know, the crucial points. She's a pretty dominant server for that age, and it's uh, she actually only had 54% of her first serves in, and still she won more points on her second serve than she did on her first, which kind of tells you that once the rally got going, that totally favored her, which is pretty crazy considering uh, Kerber is just known for her long rallies. So it was, uh, you know, it was a knockdown drag out, as Coach would say, and and we got you know something we wanted. She came into this tournament ranked 60 in the world. So again, not somebody, you know, at 18 to be 60 in the world is pretty impressive because that means you're obviously on the rise. But I don't think anybody expected these kind of results yet from her. And now we have to address what I want to focus on today on the show is the complete, not to bring, I feel like that's what we do on this show, but I'm going to do it now anyway, not to bring the show down, but I feel like we have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the complete failure of American tennis. I mean, this is by far the the primary, uh, you know, American tournament outside of the U.S. Open. So you're talking about you had a women's quarterfinal with one American. You had a men's quarterfinal with zero Americans. Uh, let me see if we had any in the round of 16. So we had one player for the men in the round of 16. And uh, it's just it's just kind of uh, it's kind of depressing because we're used to seeing a few players sneak through, you know, get in the uh, later in the tournament and make people work. So we had one woman and one man out of the final 32 players. And, and, and by the way, both of them are 30 plus and Venus, especially certainly on the downhill slide of their career. So I think that, you know, if something doesn't happen differently in Miami, I think we really have to look at the American game as a failure right now. We we've gotten, we've gotten by with talking about how the men's game, you know, is weaker, but we've always had the women, you know, the Sloan, the keys, the, the next, the next batch of play and the Williams sisters have always been there. But, you know, I think we're really starting to reach a, uh, I don't know what term I'm looking for, but a danger zone in terms of, uh, you know, Americans dominating the sport of tennis. I mean, it's gotten, it's gotten to be pretty crazy that, that on our home tournament, hard courts, which is our best surface, that we can't have a player in the quarters in the men's or, you know, anybody under 35 in the quarters in the women's or the round of 16 even. And I think, I'm, I'm glad Coach isn't here to, argue this with me, but I really think that if you watch American players, then this is obviously a generalization, but they do not, they are not willing to rally, you know, and construct points. They just are not willing to do that. It's big serve or big forehand. And that's the way they win. And that's not the players that have done well in the last 10 years. I mean, you've got some of those players that do well, but the consistent players that are doing well are the ones that are able to dictate the play from the baseline rally as long as they need to, until they get an opening and they're also great, you know, defensive players. You cannot tell me a player that's in the top that is not a good defensive player. I mean, Kvitova maybe isn't. Um, I mean, Osaka is much more offensive than defensive. But I mean, you've got better Djokovic, Nadal, incredible defensive players, obviously offensive and defensive. But I would honestly say better. I mean, I'm sorry, Djokovic, Nadal, and Murray are more defensive than offensive. And Federer is certainly an offensive player, but he does have the ability when he wants to to hang back and rally for 10, 12 shots, you know, with no problem. And I don't see our players 
from America willing to do that. And I don't know if it's, and it's funny because you watch junior tennis in America, as many of you have with your kids, or even, you know, if you played, that's what tennis typically is. It's long based on rallies until someone makes a mistake. So I know that our players had to play that way at some point. I mean, they didn't have dominant serves at 12 years old or, you know, huge forehands. I mean, so there's got to be, they have to have that gear somewhere. But I just watch and I consistently see the players that are doing well out rally the Americans and, and we don't make adjustments and they can just keep the ball deep and wait for us to make a mistake. Uh, so it's, it's Venus and Serena certainly will rally. And they, I mean, as they've gotten older, they've tried to shorten the points more, but they've always been aggressive baseliners. And that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, you know, moon balls or grinding. I'm talking about the ability to control the points from the baseline, but not pull the trigger on the second or third ball every time. And I feel like we certainly have so many of those players now. I mean, Isner, Opelka, Stevens, Keys. Stevens can rally, you know, if she's in that mode, but she she pulls the trigger too early. So it's just uh, it's frustrating to see that that game kind of going. And you saw it again. You saw it in the the names of the players that did well in this tournament. If, you know, focus on the women's side. I mean, Kerber, one of the best defensive players on the tour. Svitolina can rally all day. Uh, you know, it's that's just that's the way that the game is going. Benchich, super consistent from the baseline. You know, Pliskova is more of a power player, but she lost in the quarters. So it's just, you know, you're going to have Kerber, obviously, Benchich, Kerber, Andreescu, Svitolina. I mean, all those players can rally from the baseline when they need to. So it just frustrates me to watch because it, to me, I've played many players, and again, coach isn't here to, uh, chastise me, but I have played many players in my life. And the first thing that I try to figure out in the context of the match is, can I outlast this person in the rally? And the term, you know, that, that the tennis community uses is shot tolerance. Do I have a higher shot tolerance than my opponent? And I feel like that almost everyone, all the top players must go into a match with an American player and think, yes, I have a higher shot tolerance. And so then anytime they're in trouble, they can just keep the ball deep and wait for an error. And it just uh, it kind of drives me crazy that 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 you know strategy works against us almost across the board. I mean, you can't tell me that when someone plays Isner, they don't have a goal of get three balls back. And even Tiafo, who's a baseline player, he's much more of aggressive. He's going to litter up the stat sheet, winners and errors. And those just aren't the players that win. They honestly, I mean, you look at the Grand Slam winners again. It's people that are super, super consistent baseline with the exception of Federer again, who, who, is, who was at one time super consistent baseline, but he was able to control the points from the baseline. You know, we have, some of our players can control the points from the baseline, but they don't know what to do when they're not in control. And so, you know, that's something we'll circle back on next week, but it, it really is depressing that Canada has better prospects at this point in tennis than Americans, America does. And I don't say that as a slight to Canada, but I mean, we've got a country with a much lower population you know, a much fewer, much worse climate for tennis, much fewer facilities for tennis. And they've got, you know, right now three great prospects under 21 that could easily be top 10 players. Andreescu, Felix, Azure Eliasim, who I think is the real deal. And then Shapovalov, who, you know, he's already top 25, I believe, pretty close. So I think those, uh, just with those three players, they already have something to look forward to for the next 10 years. And what do we have to look forward to? I mean, Isner's gone. You know, Query's gone. Serena and Venus are gone. It's just, uh, 
I think we're reaching an exciting time in tennis with the young up-and-coming players sort of starting to take the reins, but none of them are American. That's the problem. You know, the only one I can think about being excited about was Anna Samova, but we really have no idea if that's a trend, her you know performance in the Australian, or if that's something that will carry over to more tournaments. I don't think she's become fully pro yet and doesn't have a ranking high enough to get in all these tournaments. So, you know, it's going to take longer for her. I believe she's only 16, maybe maybe 17 recently. But I can't name any other player that I'm super excited about. I think, you know, we have some players with potential to be top 25, top 20, maybe sneak into the top 10 somehow. But I don't think there's anybody right now that you can look at and say, man, he's going to be competing for Grand Slams in a couple of years. Whereas I could easily see Felix Shapovalov, Andreescu competing for slams. And when I say competing, I mean making the quarters. That's kind of what the barometer is. If you're in the quarters, you got a chance to win. As we saw with Andreescu, she made the quarters. She was probably number eight or seven in our, you know, who would have thought had won at that point, but then she won. So that I mean, once you're in the quarters, you got a shot. Because anybody can have a good day or off day or whatever. But we, I mean, for us to have, again, zero players in the quarters is is pretty crazy. And I mean, this is a side note because as coach would say, nobody cares about doubles, but we couldn't even get, we had zero, zero women in the doubles semifinals. I mean, again, it, we had zero women. We had one team in the women's quarterfinals and they got smoked. So, I mean, if we can't win on hard court on our home tournament, then when, when, when are we going to shine? We had zero American men in the doubles quarterfinal. So, I mean, it's, it's terrible. And, and, and that's with the Americans getting all the wild cards, by the way. I mean, the Americans get the vast majority of wild cards when you play on a tournament home soil. And yeah, we have the Bryans, but I don't know if you know this, but they're not going to be around much longer. I mean, they're a great team. We saw some incredible points from them. But I just, um, we just, I think we've got to stop hanging our hat on those players. And, you know, Venus has had a great year so far, but I think we all know, even her, that her days are numbered. She's probably holding out like a lot of people think Federer is for the Olympics next year. But at this point, anything she wins is just a bonus on top of her career. Or anytime she goes deep in a tournament, that you know, it's a bonus. But to expect her to win six matches or seven matches is is pretty far-fetched at this point. So, yeah, it was... It was exciting to see new players do well, but it was also in a bigger picture depressing to me that um you know that we had such little success at our home tournament. And again, this I mean, I have numerous friends, clients that went to the tournament. And yeah, you go to see the big name players, but you also want to see up and coming players, preferably Americans, because you want to have somebody to look forward to look forward to watching for the next several years. And it was just, uh, it was just rough. Um, and even more depressing than the lack of success is just the style of play that, that, that our players are playing. That's the, to me, the primary issue that I'm having is that I don't want to watch a serve that's not returned or, you know, a blistering forehand return. And then they barely get it back and I blister a second one. You know, I want to see, point construction, strategy, rallies, you know, some uh, breaking serve, which our Americans are horrible at also. Um, so it's just, uh, it, it's, it's, it's not the tennis that we're used to here. And I think that uh, that's what bothers me the most. And it, 
And I worry that the players that play here are going to look up to those American players, you know, that play that way and think, okay, well, this is the way we should play. And, and obviously people here are teaching that way, but I just think that that's not the game that we're at anymore. And, and it, uh, I hope we'll turn around. I'm not going to say the sky is falling after one tournament with Miami coming up. We were going to have, you know, tons of Americans in the draw again. So I think, uh, I think that, uh, we will have some success there. Somebody surely can break into the quarters at least. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of just crazy to look at a draw in tennis and see no Americans. I mean, they're having similar things in golf too. But in golf, you know, it's it's um, a little different because all the all the big tournaments are here, and for the for the most part, most of the big tournaments, and so they're always going to have American players that are that are performing at a high level. But it just tennis to me, it's it's pretty sad. I mean, we've had one guy in the top ten forever, and he's lingered in the you know ten eight to twelve spot, and nobody wants to watch him, nobody cares to watch him. Nobody cares how he does. In some ways, I think they probably root for him to lose so they don't have to watch him again. And it's just, uh, it's it's embarrassing. But we will get more uplifting on the uh, second half. I'm going to talk about uh, what I think is the inevitable outcome. I'm not even going to guess that this happened or that this, uh, I'm not even going to wait for the outcome here because I think it's a foregone conclusion that Federer is going to take out team for his 101st title. And Federer's already up a break in these first sets, so I think uh, I feel pretty good about that prediction. And I'll talk more about the men's tournament when we come back. It's time to join the revolution. Go to our website, tennisrevolutionpodcast.com, to get the latest episodes, email us your questions and comments, or give us show ideas. Welcome back to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. Well, promptly after I recorded that segment, of course, uh, Federer lost his serve, so he's down 3-4, or he's up 4-3 in the first set. But I will hold on to my prediction, knowing this is going to our millions of fans that he's going to close it out, probably in straight sets. But anyway, we had a lot to talk about in this uh, men's draw. I have to say, it was the, the structure of this tournament doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. It's a 128 draw, but there's buys, so that basically means it takes 13 days, but they play it in 12 days. So somehow you get to the Friday of the tournament, of the last uh, weekend, and they have to play three days in a row, which makes absolutely zero sense in a 13-day tournament, 12-day tournament, while you'd ever have to play three days in a row. But anyway, that's the way they do it. And you know, kind of just looking early in the tournament, we had some... Uh, Interesting results. The first thing I think we talked about that we were really excited to see, and maybe it had already happened before we recorded last, uh, but of course we really wanted to see Djokovic and Kyrgios in the second round. And of course our favorite player quickly quickly squelched that idea by losing first round to Cole Schreiber. And uh, so that took that out. And then, you know, Cole Schreiber pulls, uh, I don't know if I could say it's the upset of the year, but I, I probably would have to. You know, the upset of the year by beating Djokovic pretty routinely also. Um, so, you know, that uh, that kind of immediately put the tournament into turmoil. And it's it's funny, I feel like historically almost any time that's happened, 
you immediately see the other members of the big three accelerate. Like, you know, they might be kind of slogging around in the beginning. All of them are kind of, you know, maybe lose a set, maybe, you know, play some tough matches. But then once one of them is out, especially if it's the one seed, it's like the others just turn it on. And I feel like that's what happened with, uh, I mean, with Nadal. He just, uh, he just turned it on after that. He was, he beat Schwartzman three and one, uh, the same round that Djokovic lost. And of course, of course, he was already at that point kind of flying through the draw because he crushed Donaldson. But he beat Krajinovic, you know, three and four. So he, it, you know, he didn't drop a set. He beat uh, Kachanov six and six, which was a tough match, which is the match he actually hurt his knee. But I mean, I don't think he and Federer, he or Federer, lost a set after Djokovic went out. So it kind of just is. Uh, that's why nobody's been able to break through because it doesn't matter when one of the big four loses or even two of the big four loses, but you still got the other two that just dominate. You know, so we had uh, getting a little later in the tournament, we had some some. You know, Cole Schreiber just gets crushed after beating Djokovic, which I, again didn't surprise me. Number one, Monfi has a had a thirteen and two record going in that match against him, and also he just beat the number one player in the world. So it's like, what more is there to do after that? Uh, so he crushes him, and you know, Roundich just kind of rolled along. Uh, you know, Federer was rolling along. It uh, it was kind of a, a blast from the past because it was really all the players that were kind of in the top ten five or six years ago. With the exception of team, you had Raonic, Federer, and Nadal, uh, all kind of uh, rolling in there. But then you had what we always kind of look for, which is the young, those young, those young up and coming players playing those big names. So, going to fast forward to the quarters here, which is probably about where we left off in our last show. Well, we we were looking forward to team and Monfi. That was the first quarter that was so exciting, and Monfi withdraws. You know, I don't expect this to apply at the Pro Tour, but. You know, we always, this was always kind of a rule in tennis that if you knew that you couldn't play your next match, you know, for whatever reason, you had to go out of town, you had a tournament injured. You, so you, the, if the proper thing to do is you get to match point. So let's say you're up 6-4, 5-4, 40-30, 40-30, and you walk up to the net and default the match. Now, again, did Monfi know when he walked up the court of the previous match that he wasn't going to be able to play against team? I don't know. But... And would you expect any pro to forfeit, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars prize money? Of course not. So I'm not saying that should have happened, but it totally rubs me the wrong way when that does happen. When the there's a walkover, and obviously you know where I'm getting at later in the tournament, but there's a walkover when the match isn't even attempted. And I'm I find it I find it a little bit hard to believe you were you were good enough to win a match in the previous round and you weren't good enough to even step on the court for the next round. That to me is the part that that I don't like. And I mean they're world-class athletes. They, you know, injuries happen. I'm sure he could have been injured stretching that night or working out the next morning, you know, whatever. I think that's certainly a valid possibility. But to me, it's just, it's really a disservice to everyone. And, of course, he could go on the court and suffer through three games and get down 3-0 and then retire, and would that be any better? No, of course not. So, I mean, there's no solution to that problem, but it's just an annoyance. Um, And so there was that, that... uh Kind of put that day on a sour note, but you had Raonic playing Ketchmanovic, who, you know, nobody knows who that is. And then you had Federer playing Hercox, who has kind of come out of nowhere the last couple of weeks. And he's, uh, you know, really challenged some player, beats him, he beats Shapovalov, and he's beaten some players. So, you know, push, push Federer to four and four. And then we had the match I was the most excited about in that round, which was catching off in Nadal. 
because I know that Kachanov, and I, by the way, I was hoping it was Isner at all because I know Nadal doesn't like to play him. But Kachanov and Nadal, that's the exact kind of player that Nadal has had trouble with, especially on hard courts or grass courts. It was a hard, flat hitter, big server. You know, that I knew that that was going to be a tough match. And Nadal, despite obvious knee pain, medical timeouts, he was able to make it through 6-6, six and six, which, of course, what we were all waiting for, number 39, because we haven't seen it enough times. We've seen it 38, but for some reason that's not enough. And I'm not going to lie, I was excited about it too, so I'm totally fronting right now by acting like I wasn't. But number 39, Federer versus Nadal. And again, no day in between for some unknown reason. We're going to play three days in a row. And about an hour before they were supposed to play, you know, another another uh, big issue I had, Nadal withdrawals. And so again, I mean, there's no solution to that. You could have put off in his place. But then what do you do if Ketchinoff wins? I mean, he lost a match in the tournament, so that's not really, like, he doesn't deserve to advance. You know, but they, they, the tournament itself did a great job. I think they put an exhibition on with uh, with Sampras and Djokovic and uh, McEnroe and uh, some other, someone else. But, but uh, you know, that's cool. And that and the tournament has to do something like that. I, that was my main disappointment with our local tournament. We had a couple nights where there were some defaults and walkovers, and they didn't really provide adequate replacement entertainment but yeah so team wins an absolute battle with Raonic and that was an incredible match uh they just battled all the way through one break which was in the third set and team served at 5-4 was pretty shaky closing it out but then he finally did and so it was two hours and 31 minutes you know that that was my primary reason for picking better besides the fact that he's better than team that plus the fact that Federer didn't play so you had two and a half hours versus zero and then also, um, you know, Federer typically doesn't lose to players that play that style. You know, he one-handed backhand versus one-handed backhand. I can't think of many times he's lost to a one-hander. Just not really his mo. So again, that's certainly not. I, I would rather see Federer and Team than Raonich and Federer. But uh, and Team is proving himself as not just a clay court player. You know, he made deep in the Australia or deep in the U.S. Open against Nadal. So I think. Uh, he is finally sort of, you know, broadened his game, but I just don't think he's quite ready for Federer. Uh, if, you know, Federer in the final is a different animal. And Federer has the ability to take, you know, the rally ball away from team. He's not going to let him, you know, run run him ragged like he did to Raonic for a lot of that match. So, yeah, that's uh, that's how we got there. I uh, We almost had, you know, the ideal you know, outcome that we like. We almost had some, we had some young up and comers that had a chance to go to the end and play Federer. And that was, you know, what we, what we look for, or, I mean, even if it was Nadal that made the final or whoever it was, you know, we had a few of those up and comers and even Monfi. I think we all would love to see Monfi win a slam. We'd love to see Burdich win a slam. Okay. Maybe not Burdich, but that type with Nishikori, we'd love to see him win a slam. El Potra, we'd like to see one another one. I think that's kind of even, and even if it's not a slam, it's you know one of these big tournaments. So I would have loved to see Monfi Federer. I'm okay with seeing Team Federer because Team hasn't won at Masters on hard court, so it's and it's a little bit different matchup. I was actually happy that Federer and Nadal were in the same half because uh, because I didn't want to see a Federer and Nadal final, just because just because we've seen that we've seen that uh, movie before. So you know I. Uh, Overall, I think it was a great tournament, and once again, they were able to do what no other tournament 
over the course of the year, including Grand Slams, is able to do, which is make the doubles entertaining. They were able to, uh, you know, get the doubles, uh, the big name players to play doubles, and in 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 uh, in turn, were able to generate the crowds and and the you know visibility and that kind of thing. So, uh, Federer just took takes the first set. So my prediction is back up, back alive, but. That's got to be the model that the other tournaments use. But I think the biggest biggest obstacle to that is this tournament can do it because it's a 12-day tournament or 13-day tournament. So you have that option to have a day off, a day in between, to ask guys to play singles and doubles and probably play nine matches over the course of six days. That's just not, not realistic. And the top players are never going to do that because, number one, the doubles prize money is so low. Number two, they're not as good at doubles, so they're risking their you know reputation as, a, as an amazing player, which we saw from Djokovic, who was atrocious in the, in the third set tiebreak that, that he lost with Fonini. You know, I think it's – I don't see it ever happening, but I think that the 12-day format does, does make it more, more plausible. And so we got to see that. We got to see the Bryans, and we got to see those – we didn't see as many of the big names as we usually do in doubles, but we got to see Djokovic. You know, we've seen Nadal and Federer previous years of this tournament. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's just a good, well-rounded tournament. I feel like there's always tennis on through the course of the whole two weeks that you actually care about, and I think that's where the other tournaments are lacking. I don't want to watch the men's final, typically men's doubles final, typically, or the women's doubles final. But in this tournament, there's a good chance that I'm going to get somebody I've heard of or a star player out there late in the tournament, even if it's not the finals, made the semis. But anyway, I want to fast forward a little bit to Miami and tell you guys, you know, and call in. I had to use that line because coach isn't here, but call in, tell me what you think about uh, how Miami's shaping up. It'll be interesting to see if Federer can bounce back like he used to and just play these back-to-back things. He did it two years ago, won both and beaten it all in both tournaments. So it'll be interesting to see because I think Djokovic is going to come back with a vengeance. And I don't want to sound like a broken record, like where, oh, Djokovic is going to win everything. He's going to win the whole calendar slam and every match you ever play. You know, but I think that that he will be very motivated by that loss, and he'll be the freshest. Nadal is certainly not fresh. Federer can't be fresh. I mean, Federer didn't have any long, grueling matches, barring what happens in the final, but Djokovic is certainly the freshest of all the top players. He's got a good history in Miami. A little hotter, a little more humid. Maybe favors the way he plays. And so I think that after that tournament, we will still see him as the favorite the rest of the year going forward. Now, if he flames that early again, then I think there's going to be some serious questions coming up of what's wrong with Djokovic. Why is he, you know, where's his game? And I don't think that, I don't think we need to have that conversation now after one tournament. I think that is just bad day. He had a lot of time off, a little rusty, didn't play well that day. I think that, that just is going to happen to every player. But I think, to me, this is where somebody like Andreescu, for me to believe that she's the next big thing, she has has to make the quarters. If she makes the quarters, I'm good. Or if she runs up against a big seed early on and just battles till the end and loses 7-5 in the third, I'm okay with that too because she won't be seated, I don't think. Uh, she could be, actually. But but uh, she either way, she won't be a top seed, so she could play a big name early. But that, to me, is is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for Osaka to bounce back. I'm looking for, uh, you know, to see if Serena comes back. I think Nadal, to see where he is. There's a, To me, there's way more interesting storylines going into Miami than there were going into Indian Wells. 
So I think uh, you know Sharapova and Del Potro may be back. So there's there's a uh, a lot of reasons. And, and Miami to me is sometimes a forgotten tournament because here in you know DFW area we have so much free time when any Wells is on because it's spring break. So there's a lot of downtime to watch tennis on TV. And I feel like once we get back to this next week, we're back to the doldrums of work and school and our lives. And it, uh, tennis is finally it sometimes takes a back seat. Never a back seat for me, but for the rest of the world who doesn't do it for a living. You know, they don't have time to watch six hours of tennis a day for they may catch, you know, one match in the evening or something. And also just the burnout, inevitable burnout of watching so much tennis this previous week. So I think that it sometimes gets forgotten, even by me, I admit it. And so I've def- that's why I say said earlier that to me the Indian Wells is the most prestigious American tournament besides the U.S. Open because that's when the most eyes are on you. Uh, and, and then they get a huge, you know, attendance there too. So you're just everybody's seeing you, and to me that's the that's the the one that matters more. And then if people could come in and uh, and uh, do well at Miami, that's great too. I also feel like Miami doesn't really springboard you to anything because then we immediately go to clay. So it's like, yeah, you just won. Like if Andreescu won Miami, not even Wells, but Miami instead. I'm not really seeing that springboard into something because then you're going to a completely different surface continent. You know everything, so it, like that. Whereas you win any wells, that should springboard you to Miami. So you could easily have you know two big. If you do make two semis or a fi- win in a semi, I mean that's a crazy amount of points. Your ranking is going to go up, you know, thirty, forty, fifty percent just from those two, just from those two events. So that's why I don't get too excited about uh, as excited about Miami as any wells. But this year's different. I've I've got a lot of players that I want to see how they bounce back. I want to see how they follow up. I want to see how Pass you know, comes back after an early exit and, and surely some American will pick it up. I'm going to mark, I'm going to say we're going to have an American in the men's and women's quarters. So one, at least one in each, I'm going to make that prediction. And again, thinking about that, as I say it, the men's that's, that's a harder sell. I mean, almost, I almost have to hope for Isner, um, because anybody else is going to have to pull some upsets to get there. But, uh, you know, I think I'm still going to go with it just because I think that home court advantage has to mean something. Um, and just the surface too, the, the familiar surface. But anyway, yeah, that is, that is to me the, the kind of storylines going into Miami. I want to see it to me, it's the bounce back and the, you know, the follow through, follow through, meaning who that did well in Indian Wells can carry it over. And that's typically the best players. Because no offense to Andreescu, but anybody can win a tournament. It doesn't seem that way in the men's because we've had the same four winners for 15 years. But, you know, if you look at, I mean, I think there was a stat this week that we've had 30 different winners between the men's and the women's tour. And I think Andreescu is certainly a different winner. If Federer wins this, that streak will be broken because he won Rotterdam, but, but the, or uh, Dubai. But the, uh, the, if team were to win, I think that would keep that streak going, which would be like the, they said it was like the longest ever into a season that had happened for for a pretty long time. So what I mean by that is it's hard to say. I mean, how can you say that that springs were to something? We've had 30 different winners. So obviously the other, the previous 30, it didn't, it didn't lead to anything because they didn't win another one after that. But that, that, so that to me is the, is the, the sign I look for that who can do it two consecutive weeks or three consecutive weeks in this case. So I'm looking for that. I uh, unfortunately, what typically happens is the 
the players that do really well in Indian Wells often flame out early, you know, partly for many reasons, but I mean, the obvious reasons being fatigue and, and just a letdown after big, a big win. So I think that is the, uh, you know, the problem. And again, and you see players that are super motivated and they train, you know, when you lose, you are going to go out and work on what made you lose. And so all those players in Ian Wells that lost early, they had that extra week, five days, whenever you lost to get out there and practice those things and re- regain your confidence. Whereas you don't have that. If you go, if you go to the finals, I mean, you get what three, four days off. You don't have that option to go and work on anything. You're just basically got to keep doing what you're doing. So, I mean, that's another, uh, that's another obvious reason that you don't see many repeat performances. Now I'd be, I would almost be surprised when it all plays. I'd be, I would not be surprised if Federer goes deep because he always does. And then, like I said, I, I predict Djokovic to go, you know, all the way. So it, it's, uh, we'll have a lot to talk about next week. I think, uh, having coach back, he will share with us all his, uh, spring break, uh, shenanigans that he's, that he's, uh, partaking in and I really want to get on him about uh, about what he thinks about my theory about just American tennis being completely you know in the toilet we've talked about that numerous times in terms of USTA and the governing bodies and the training and but I mean this to me is totally a uh, something that's got to be addressed in terms of an American tournament with players not going deep. So I think that I want to hear his take on that. I want to see what, uh, if he thinks we could turn around, I want to see what he thinks we need to turn around. And, and most of all, I want to see who he thinks can turn around because I just don't see it. If I list all the up and coming players that I've, that I've heard seen and heard great things about, none of them are American. And so that's the, that's the conundrum I'm in right now is I want to root for Americans. I want to see Americans. I want to like Americans and they're not giving me that option. So that, uh, that'll be the topic for next week. And I will, uh, I will get on him to give us the, uh, the solution to all things tennis as he always does. So as always, you guys can check us out online. I'm not going to give you all the details. Like I'll leave that to coach. Uh, but feel free to go to tennis revolution You go to tw- Twitter at tennis rev pod. Uh, or Tennis Revolution pod. And until next time, thanks for joining the revolution.